0: Iran's ban
1: on the teaching of English in primary schools is fueling a debate both inside and outside the country.
0: Moving on and uh, travelling a bit, we're going now to Iran. In fact, the country has banned teaching English in schools after the country's top leader said it opens the way to Western cultural invasion.
2: The act of protecting your culture, either literally or ostensibly, is becoming much more difficult because of the rise of the Internet.
3: Welcome back to The Global Enquirer spring 2018 season. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that looks into case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Nico Marsich, and today I'm joined by Nicholas Mortensen, a researcher at The Global Inquirer and a prospective global security and justice major. Glad to be here. So our case study today is going to take us into Iran, where they recently announced the banning of teaching English in primary schools to explain the larger trend of cultural protectionist policies in countries around the world. But before jumping into the case study and this larger trend, Nick, can you talk to me a little bit about where the research took you?
2: So the research took me in a direction I really wasn't quite expecting. In the mainstream there's assumption that cultural protectionist policies are going to be moral legal evils. There's a tendency to hyperfocus on Iran, China, North Korea and other real authoritarian states and kind of look at the extreme spectrum of what these policies do, the restriction of speech, the restriction of the free spread of ideas, and the restriction of communication in Internet. However, most countries on Earth have these protectionist policies on a much smaller spectrum. They're there to protect domestic producers of cultural products, be it art, film, music, or television, and stop these products from being bullied or sort of shoved out by larger cultural exporters. And in our discussion
3: beforehand, you talked about how these policies can kind of be defined in two categories, policies that restrict or policies to promote the spread of cultural
2: products? Yeah. So the policies that restrict are the ones that end up in mainstream discussions and in the media most often, because these are more of the sexier policies. These are the policies that China, Iran, North Korea, and those aforementioned countries pursue. They're there to staunch the spread of new ideas or undesirable information. On the other hand, Policies that promote are the ones I talked about with other nations. They're simply there to promote and often provide advantages to a domestic cultural product for whatever reason. And this can be tax breaks, uh, subsidization of cultural projects, or providing a privileged market.
3: And so bringing us back into the case study of Iran, um, can you walk me through the case study and talk about which example
2: of cultural protectionism this represents? So to begin, this is an example of a restrictive uh, protectionist policy. And to talk about this more, I actually sat down with Professor Emily Blout, a professor of media studies at University of Virginia. And she had a lot to say about this.
0: Yes, this is a significant policy change. Iran has already, um, in terms of its own citizenry, really targeted um, cultures, alternative cultures to the Persian culture, the Iranian culture endorsed and... Um, supported by the, the Iranian nation-state, which is Farsi, and iterations of what it would call Islamic government um, and Islamic jurisprudence, and it has, it sought to muzzle, for example, the the teaching of Arabic in primary schools or any schools, public schools. It also sought to uh, at least repress or suppress The Jewish Iranian community, of which it's it's significant a population. There's estimates between thirty and forty thousand Iranian Jews, which is the largest Jewish population outside of Israel in the Middle East. So we've seen this tactic before, but the banning of the English teaching English language in primary school is so significant, and not maybe for the reasons why you would normally believe or you think of right off the bat, which is kind of the idea that the the official line which is you know just to stop the cultural invasion but also because english is a lingua franca of the web of the internet of the world wide web and we're seeing a pattern here of nationalization data territorializ- territorialization in iran in which the iranian government is now has pursued a policy of a national internet and it's a national internet complete with, um, it's actually the, it's Air, It's an Arab alphabet, but it's Farsi. Um, so using Farsi and the Arab alf- alphabet on which Farsi is relayed, um, and closing off that communication systems to the rest of the world, and keeping as much data and interactions as possible within Iran. And knowing that and understanding that English is the lingua franca of the internet of the world wide web and it is a way that we as a western community certainly Americans get information about what's going on in Iran cutting off or denying entire generation an upcoming generation of the understanding of of you know the tools of the English language and as you as you um, surely know your ability to learn a second language or a third language is um, the most keen right around elementary school. I mean, this is when you really are able to pick up and have the, you know, have the skills inbuilt to 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 create a proficiency in a different language. So cutting that generation off is is significant, and I think it supports this larger goal of cutting off or at least segmenting the information environment.
2: So the banning of English is a really big policy with really big consequences. It is a policy that is more or less cutting off the common Iranian person from the lingua franca of the Internet and the business world, English. This cuts someone off from understanding, you know, the Western Internet, even even if they can access it, and also makes it harder for businessmen and individuals to kind of interact and uh, act with the outside world.
3: And beyond banning teaching English in schools, what other restrictive policies have they implemented?
2: Well, Professor Blount and I had a very long conversation about this, and let's go to that.
0: I can surmise, as a historian of Iranian media and, and the development of the modern mass communication sector, this um, follows a, a pattern of behavior in which, ever since, as, you know, certainly ever since the 1953 coup, of which the US, the CIA, was instrumental in overthrowing. Um, the democratically elected prime minister, Mohamed Mossadegh, um, through primarily, through propaganda, there has been a recognition of the power of media and the information space in securing or undermining regime security. So um, this is a continuation, I think. These kind of behaviors are a continuation of the extreme sensitivity to information and the power of information through media and a recognition of um, how the potential of, of media if wielded correctly.
2: And these policies are justified f- through protecting, you know, the Persian cultures or protecting this conception of what an Iranian should be?
0: Correct, correct. It's, it's nationalism. So this is another form of, of nationalism. And ironically, um, or not, ironically, uh, nationalism is 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 one of the pillars of the state's legitimacy.
2: So Iran has a very long history with restricting the spread of information. There was satellite TV ban in 1995 to start, and that wasn't even the first. You had the construction of this parallel internet composed of domestic servers and domestic services that the Iranian government at any time can monitor or restrict or throttle uh, as they see fit. And they've also worked very, very hard to make it difficult for users to access other outside, very often Western websites. The use of VPNs or uh, proxies, which essentially allow users to sidestep any restrictions on websites you can, you can visit, are throttled in Iran and are more expensive in Iran. So essentially... Visiting outside websites, even if you're tech savvy enough to do it, is too slow and too expensive to really be worthwhile. And you're sort of forced back into that playpen that the Iranian government wants you to be in, where they can watch and monitor and in times of national crisis, throttle. And so what are the goals of these policies? So the goals of these policies is to protect the Iranian government. Uh, These policies are very often absolutely impossible to enforce. The satellite TV ban in particular, and Emily Blau did mention this.
0: It's impossible to stop. It's impossible to actually ban satellite dish ownership, and as rightly so. Um, there's still satellite dishes all over every apartment building in urban centers and in villages, um, and there never was a quashing of, you know, watching satellite TV. Television is still, satellite television is still the primary, the primary way in which Iranians get their information, even though the internet is, has proliferated.
2: Everybody to this day has satellite TV. It's a main fixture of every apartment block and every individual household in Iran. The reason why the satellite TV ban exists and is still on the books and why they haven't you know, thrown every single citizen in Iran into the back of a police van is because it's a cudgel. It is a law that is selectively enforced to imprison people activists or agitators or people who may, may be harmful to the government and more or less get them out of the public mainstream when they become too dangerous. It's a selective cudgel. The same goes for the internet regulations. It is a way of monitoring people as well as imprisoning bloggers, internet commentators or pundits who may, you know, possibly turn public opinion against the Iranian government.
3: And regardless of whether or not it's effective, how is it actually justified?
2: So, these policies are justified by protecting the Iranian uh, people and the Iranian culture from toxic Western imperialism, is usually the quote they use. And Emily Blout had a lot of interesting sa- things to say about this.
0: I think it, the intention is to create an appearance of abiding by certain strictures, abiding by Islamic tenets, the way that Islamic tenets are actually articulated and um, um, expressed in this. Form of government in, in this particular situation and to provide that impression of, of piety and at the same time have a, a really useful um, tool f- through which to justify clampdowns um, on the populace. So if, if you are, if, if, if you're a leader and you feel threatened um, by a dissident or, or some you know, a citizen's blogging or some kind of communication, and you don't necessarily have the legal uh, um, justification to, to to crack down unless you have this satellite ban. So you say, look, you know, this this person is using satellite TV, that's illegal, or this person is, you know, doing something else. And it's such a broad, um, it's such a broad law that it's easy to, to enforce, but selectively enforce.
2: The Iranian government has worked very hard to make sure that this fear of Western cultural influences looms large in the sort of the overall mentality of the Iranian populace because it's really impossible to control or account for the thoughts of an entire population. But one thing we can account for, as M. Blatt says, is the interest of the Iranian government, which is self-preservation and this predication on this Islamic revolution. And as we saw in the recent anti-government protests, There were concerning trends where the Iranian populace weren't chanting death to America, but death uh, to the existing president or calling for a fundamental reformation in government policies and the government itself.
3: Well, what's interesting, too, is that a lot of these protectionist policies um, to ban or to restrict the Internet don't necessarily reflect the whole
2: culture of Iran itself. Absolutely not. These policies are there to allow the government to sort of further the culture and the outlook that it wants to uh, be reflected in its in citizens, whether or not it works, is yet to be seen. Very often, doesn't seem to be ca- seem to be the case based off what Iranian citizens are saying. However, the main thing is that they're there to take people out who may endanger the Islamic Revolution, to endanger the found the theological foundation of the Iranian state, because Iran isn't in the business of promoting. This Iranian nationalist view, they're here to further this Islamic nationalist view. And while that isn't really a view shared by much of the Iranian populace, many of their citizens are actually quite moderate in comparison to other Middle Easterners. It doesn't really matter as much. The Iranian government is there to take to sort of take anyone who threatens that, that sort of pretension, that preconceived notion of what Iran ought to be out of the mainstream at any time through these laws. Hmm.
3: And sort of to transition here, you know, we've talked about these restrictive protectionist policies, um, but what are some of policies that actually promote uh, culture or,
2: or serve to uh, spread certain cultural products? Well, they most certainly don't exist in Iran, I'll tell you that much. Um, these, uh, the promotion policies are very often seen in the West and in the European Union. And... What you might want to think is that these policies are objectively good, that, you know, it's all sunshine and rainbows in the West, that we're here for the promotion of free spread of ideas. But there are a lot of challenges here, too. And there are even some ethical and regulatory challenges. And to talk about this, I actually went to uh, Dr. Mira Burry, who is a professor in Switzerland at the University of Lucerne, who talks about uh, European Union uh, cultural policy and the legal and uh, regulatory ramifications of these policies. And she had a lot to say about the traditional policies, the policies that we don't really notice, but have loomed very large in our cultural landscape for decades.
1: So uh, instead of um, really subscribing to standard free trade provisions, like the one we have um, in the World Trade Organization or in free trade agreements, they would just not commit for trading cultural goods and services so they would have a carve out of the non-discrimination principles that would normally apply in our free trade agreements
2: so, according to Burry, uh, these are individual policies. They're mandates that can be imposed domestically. You know, satellite cable providers and radio shows have to play a certain proportion of domestic cultural products. You know, the German radio or satellite TV has to play 30 to 50 percent of German content. Sort of onward and upwards like that. That's a system that has been around for a very long time. I wouldn't say it works. And actually, Dr. Burry says the exact same thing. It's really hard to establish these links.
1: Uh, who are uh, still surprisingly strong – Uh, in different constituencies, in different governments, is that they tend to stick to a sort of um, old protectionist model. So they really want to protect shelf space. They want to protect a certain amount of time or a certain uh, share uh, on the market for those European works. And this is not necessarily uh, an appropriate way of doing this, of of furthering uh, cultural diversity.
2: And do these policies really even matter for a lot of these European countries? Well, uh, with the rise of the internet, they're starting to matter a lot less. And I asked Dr. Burry about the spread of the internet, and that's what she had to say.
1: As you know quite well, we are now in a world where um, the users are much more empowered. So users, uh, consumers can really choose what they want to see, when they want to see it. So we have moved from this sort of um, space of... uh, to multi-point uh, broadcasting, like television, of course, and radio, towards this poor media, and precisely in this transformation, uh, the governments or the cultural agencies, um, they are struggling to uh, implement more at work.
2: Amongst the younger generation, sort of TV consumption is way, way down. Uh, A lot of people um, Mm. of the sort of younger generation, you know, 20s, 30s, uh, are more apt to get their content from the Internet. So is that trend a global Mm -hmm. trend? Is that what you're seeing, you know, in Europe as well?
1: Yes. We see the same trend here uh, in Europe as well. Um, Globally speaking, uh, if you take... um, all the developing countries are on board as well, where you see that uh, TV remains at least sort of um, for the average person on the globe, still the number one media outlet. So if you put things into perspective, um, TV is quite important. The younger generation um, does not uh, watch TV um, at all. Uh, so now in Switzerland here, and we have, um, we're going to vote uh, next week, uh, actually, uh, no, in the beginning of March, whether uh, we would like to stop the funding of the public service broadcaster. And the public service broadcaster, uh, unlike uh, uh, in the U.S., has a very prominent role here in Switzerland, similarly to other European countries. So um, there were a lot of them studies made um, amongst uh, younger users, among the younger generation, and they simply do not care because they never uh, use, um, they don't watch TV or, uh, or this legacy media.
2: So Dr. Berry mentions that there's an age gap, that the older policies still work in many extents for the older population because they still watch satellite TV. They still watch cable TV. They still listen to the radio. The younger population watches YouTube. They use Hulu, they use Amazon Prime Video, they they use Netflix, they use all these services which are much, much harder to regulate on a stateside basis because we're entering a very new frontier that is very unfriendly to these regulatory policies. And Dr. Burry mentioned that it's a lot harder. There are a lot more players in the game at this point.
1: It certainly is much harder now for states to sort of enforce their cultural policies. And... um Indeed, on finding models that are also going to work uh, in the online space.
2: So, when your hardware manufacturer is a you know player in, in the cultural exchange, when your software manufacturer is player in the cultural exchange, when Google, YouTube, these profit-based businesses. Are players in the cultural exchange, life becomes a lot harder. And you get into a much larger chain and a much larger infrastructure that you have to modify and work with in order to promote these goals that these cultural protectionist policies are oriented towards.
1: For uh, innovating uh, cultural policy making, uh, what is a little bit unfortunate is that those sort of older thinking cultural policy uh, makers are still in their positions. So we haven't seen a sort of a switch. Uh, in generations um, in this uh, policymakers, But maybe it's coming.
2: What Dr. Burry is saying is that you still have policy regulators who aren't experienced with this form of technology. They don't really quite know what to do. So there's an issue of regulators either not knowing what to do or not wanting to do what needs to be done. There's this obsession with shelf space policies that if you have a certain proportion of this product either on the airwaves or on shelf space, that that's good enough. And there's not – really haven't been any attempts to break into the internet. The policies that have attempted to work with the internet get into a completely new realm of very, very complicated regulatory and ethical questions. Why would the Internet be harder to regulate than previous means of communication? Well, as Dr. Burry said a couple minutes ago, you have this new chain of people who are involved in the discussion. But there's more to that. The very infrastructure these systems are built upon makes it very difficult. And let's listen to Dr. Burry about that.
1: In the cultural policy field, what we have seen over the years, and I mentioned this a little bit, is that you have this um, – very strong lobbying groups, um, very strong constituencies, um, that protect this cultural policy interests, even, uh, very often without, um, sort of, trying to find the best way of achieving that goal. They basically would argue, let us protect what we have because we're going to lose everything. And um, this debate is quite interesting, I think, uh, in particular now, with regard to the role of algorithms um, in the use of uh, new media. Um, Well, the argument there is we know it quite well from um, American scholars like Carl Sunstein and others, is that the argument is that we live in a sort of a bubble, uh, in a sort of an echo chamber that has been driven by our previous industries or our behavior on social networking websites. And this reinforces a certain pattern of media consumption that is not necessarily culturally or politically uh, diverse, uh, but is very much actually um, limited and not open to uh, other voices, to other uh, debates, and ultimately leads to sort of poor um, public opinion decisions, to poor choices in voting, uh, and also ultimately to poor um, cultural uh, consumption.
2: Netflix, Google, YouTube… All these services are predicated on algorithms. There are automatic programs that curate and select what they think you want to see next based off what you're already viewing. And as Dr. Burry mentions, these are very self-reinforcing. They create echo chambers. If I'm going to watch one particular type of video, it's going to keep on feeding me that until the day I die, more or less. And the issue is that that doesn't, make it very easy for new cultural products to be introduced. These algorithms are self-reinforcing. They're self-reinforcing of your viewing habits. And as many policy regulators are, are now seeing, that makes it much harder for certain cultural products to sort of break the ice, to kind of break through that mold and break through that algorithm.
3: So from a regulatory perspective, it seems like the most obvious solution would just be to enforce transparency of these algorithms.
2: There's a lot more to it than that.
1: There have been also some... Um Suggestions that those public those those algorithms uh, should be uh, regulated in certain way, for instance, um, not necessarily in a hard way as a regulatory burden, but in sort of a softer way, and sort of a nudging towards um, perhaps uh, healthier or more culturally diverse choices. Uh, for instance, that if you um, do keep listening to country music. Uh every now and then they would make also other suggestions to you well, please also try this type of music, uh sort of a notching you towards um trying or something new.
2: You have a softer a softer touch approach where the algorithm will just suggest similar but new content for you to see every now and then, but you also have the idea that you could just shoehorn in desirable content into that algorithm to sort of break you out of that mold entirely. And that's still a difficult policy question to address. But it even goes beyond that. Modifying these algorithms, uh, taking more direct regulatory stances with these companies is very often incongruous or even self-defeating of European and Western uh, policy goals, according to Dr. Bering. That's what you had to say about that.
1: This is very, very controversial, of course, because it's going to make overall this content providers uh, subject to a higher regulatory burden, which is very often associated with less innovation, uh, less uh, free speech.
2: So you find yourself in this really delicate balancing act. The internet is making things much more difficult to regulate and control. And whatever regulations and controls you do have could be self-defeating. They could quash innovation. They could be used to you know, control or promote certain views that the government wants you to view. And even just going beyond that, you have to deal with a lot, of, a, a lot of businesses which are very profit-driven, and there are just certain ideological stances held in the West that that may not be the best call.
3: Like Dr. Burry mentioned, the irony of this all is that you know, in trying to spread certain cultural products, you could be limiting the cultural diversity that a lot of these Western nations um, like espouse to.
2: You need to be very, very, very careful to not fall into a self-defeating system more or less. And this is kind of a trend that we're seeing across the world that the internet is making things much, much more difficult. And for these policies, for these protectionist or um, isolationist policies – Regardless of the actual end that these policies pursue, because they're all justified by protecting cultures, no matter what the Iranians do and what the rest of the world does, whatever the Chinese do, whatever the rest of the world does, protecting that domestic culture is always the justification regardless of the actual ends. However, the way these policies pursue these ends is becoming much, much more difficult because of the uh, rise of the internet and the rise of these new technologies. And Dr. Bury and Professor Blout had a lot to say about this.
1: What is good for now is that there is... um an understanding of this complexity. So, um, regulators uh, are cautious in putting into place um, deep interventionist measures or really hard, uh, very burdensome um, uh, norms and provisions in place. So, they're uh, much more careful if you compare to what we know from um, before when we essentially have this command and control types of uh, governance.
0: The developments in technology and our in cyberspace, particularly in, in hypermedia, are, are outpacing the ability of governments or sovereign entities to really respond to and safely regulate.
3: And so to conclude here, I want to pose a question for our listeners. Given how difficult it would be to implement policies to actually regulate in this sphere, how will governments react to this inability to implement protective
2: policies? It's a really difficult thing to say. And I'm a twenty year old undergraduate, so you know, my my thoughts on it are as good as dirt. But the main thing to consider here is that we're entering a new frontier. We're entering this new sort of area of cultural exchange of cultural products and we've been in it for years but we're now starting to see the regulatory consequences and challenges surrounding it and no matter what stance governments are trying to take on it no matter how these policies are pursued the act of protecting your culture either you know literally or ostensibly is becoming much more much more difficult because of the rise of the internet And that'll
3: do it for today's episode. I want to thank Nick for coming on in the studio and doing these two interviews with Dr. Burry and Professor Blau. Uh, And be sure to tune in next week as Katya and I discuss how tech innovation is empowering women in developing countries. And while you're at it, be sure to give us a comment on uh, Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate all the support and all the listenership. And we'll see you next time.